Father, thank you so much, Lord, for another glorious Lord's Day. Lord, help us to focus on you, focus on the preaching of your word. Help us to be attentive, um, to learn what your word has to reveal to us today, and help us to uh, apply it to our lives. Lord, pray for those in this valley that haven't heard your word ever, the truth of the gospel. Help us to go to them and help them to understand and come to know you, um, to bring glory to your name. We thank you for this place. I thank you for my brothers and sisters, and I pray that you would help them and guide them through the week. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We'll be looking at John chapter 14, verses 5 through 7 this morning. And of course, last week... Jesus addressed Peter. Peter was desperately desiring to know where Christ was going. And in light of Christ's response to Peter, Thomas asks a question. Thomas does not know where the Lord is going, therefore he does not know how to, there he does, therefore he does not know the way. One of the most frustrating things in the world is knowing where you have to go and not knowing how to get there. Every time I go to the Ashokan, that happens to me, and we get lost for 15 minutes up there because I do not know how to get to the Ashokan. Um, but Thomas's question here is, is a very sincere question. And Thomas, of course, is called Doubting Thomas. He's going to ask later to put his fingers in Christ's nail-pierced hands, uh, but here uh, the question is very sincere, and I think even there. Uh, but let's give attention to the reading of the word, and we'll get right into the text. John chapter 14, verses 5 through 7. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Amen. Well, you know, verse 7 is a cliffhanger, huh? You want that? <laughs> I want the answer he gives to Philip. But that's how this chapter plays out. You have Peter's question, Thomas's question, Philip's question, and then Judas, not Iscariot's question in verse 22. And I'm certain Judas, not Iscariot, always introduced himself that way. <laughs> yes, I'm Judas, not Iscariot. <laughs> so so uh, you have a question about the way. Verse 5. Second, you have an explanation of the way in verse 6. And then in verse 7, you have some words of comfort. I think, I hate to say this, but most translations, I think, translate verse 7 not as good as they could. But let's get right into it then. The question itself. And this is similar to the question Peter asked. Look back. Um... If, if you look back at um, 
verse 37 of chapter 13. Peter asks, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. So he wants to know, why, why, I, why can't I go with you? And we saw the Lord's answer to him, now you can't, later you will. And then Jesus gives this beautiful description of the place where he is going. I love how Pink describes it. He says, he, he described the Father, the Father's house, his many mansions, Christ going to be there to prepare a place, his promise to come and receive his people, all of these things. And they were dim and unreal to Thomas. <clears throat> In light of Jesus' answer to Peter, Thomas really is asking a clarifying question. And he wants clarification. You're saying you're going somewhere, but we don't know where you're going. How is it that we are going to follow you to this place? The disciples believed that Christ was the Messiah. They believed him over against all of the religious leaders. The religious leaders of, of their day did not believe that Christ was the Messiah, but his disciples did. And this question really is an answer of faith seeking understanding. It's not doubting Thomas who doesn't believe in Jesus and is just interested in his you know, travel plans, his itinerary. That's not it at all. We do not know the road or the path to take. Tell us. That's what Thomas is asking. And now note Thomas first. Um, we don't know his tone, but you can pick it up from Jesus' answer because Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas at all. Thomas's desire is to learn from and to be with his Lord. Remember in chapter 11, when Jesus says, come on, let's go, let's get out of here. And chapter 11, verse 16, and Thomas says, let's go and die with him. I don't think he was, uh, you know, just saying that for the sake of his companions. He was willing to die with his Lord. That's the same thing, remember, that Peter says even here in verse 37. I will lay down my life for your sake. Where are you going? I want to come with you. I'll die for you if I have to. Philip had already said a very similar thing when Jesus was leaving. Well, Jesus was traveling, in essence, there to preach when the religious leaders wanted to kill him. And now Thomas, in the same sphere, is asking this question, where are you going? We want to know. Now, Thomas makes two blessed mistakes in interpreting what Jesus said in verses 1 through 4. And the first mistake was, he mistook spiritual truths for literal truths. He's got a father's house somewhere with all these rooms, and he's going to go fix them, you know. Uh, what's that address? <laughs> where on Port Ben? Because <laughs> I don't know. And that's a common mistake that we made. You know, my, my, uh, one of my patron saints, Luther, uh, did this with the Lord's Supper, right? So literal body, literal blood of Christ. Um, of course, uh, not transubstantiation, but consubstantiation. But he makes that mistake, and we tend to make those mistakes too. You know, we'll read the, pro the book of Proverbs as just an open checkbook of promises, and then when God, when we do those things in Proverbs and God chooses to uh, uh, lead us in a different way or bring difficulties into our life, we're distraught. 
we read the Old Testament itself and we take many of those passages to just, they transfer over and we're just going to literally apply them to ourselves today. You make a lot of mistakes that way. You'll frustrate yourself like crazy. But he, mis he misunderstood, this was a mistake, spiritual truths for literal truth. Jesus wasn't communicating to Thomas that there is a literal mansion that I'm going to go work on so that the rooms are ready for you. That's not what he was trying to communicate. The second thing was that the way Jesus takes and the way we must take are different. We don't go to the Father the same way. Christ goes to the Father by virtue of his own person. He goes to the Father by suffering, by dying, and by paying for the sins of his people. That is the way Christ takes. That's not the way that we take. Yes, our life is accompanied with suffering, difficulty. We saw last, uh, yes, last week, or maybe the week before that, Peter was crucified upside down. He did follow his Lord. But with regards to the way of the Father, specifically what Jesus is talking about here, the way he goes is not the way that we go. We go to the Father through him. We would do well to follow Thomas's example. Right? How does James say, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And generally, you know what we do when we lack wisdom? We get frustrated. <laughs> And we might not do anything about it. We complain, we mope, and we try to resolve things ourselves. But really, we must, we must go to God, specifically when there are truths in the Bible that we cannot understand. An unbeliever, there's no struggle with this, with the unbeliever. The unbeliever could care less. Even the unbeliever who reads his Bible regularly, there are many. But it doesn't struggle with that. If he doesn't understand something, he just chalks it up to, eh, this little book, you know, doesn't make sense anyways. But we would do well to follow Thomas's example. And I think Luther is, is an excellent example of this. This is from his introduction to the book of Romans. He writes this. I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. So he's reading Romans, and there's just this increased desire in knowing what, what is Paul saying in this book. But up until then, it was a single word in Romans 1.17. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. That stood in my way. For, I hated that word. And this is a misunderstanding Luther had because he was a Catholic. Right? He's still a Catholic. He's in that Roman Catholic tradition. He's studying Romans and he hears righteous or righteousness. And he hates that, the thought of it. For I hated that word righteousness of God, which according to the custom and use of all the teachers, his Catholic teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and, punishe and punishes the unrighteous sin. And thus I raged with fierce and troubled conscience. So when he was reading about the righteousness of God, all that he could think about because of his own misunderstanding in light of his teachers was God's 
judgment against my sinfulness. And God's righteousness is being manifested or revealed in Christ, and I'm troubled. But here, here's where uh, he imitates, as it were, Thomas. And nevertheless, I beat importunate, importunately upon Paul at this place, most ardently desiring to know what Paul wanted. So he, he just kept, he goes back to Romans and prays and studies and, and listen to what he says. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, as it were. He who through faith is righteous shall live. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely, by faith. I'm not going to go into his explanation or what he means, but what I want to point out was his ardent desire. He kept going. He didn't understand what Paul was saying, so he would pray for mercy, and then he would return and meditate and think about the truth of the word night and day. God, clarify this for me. Help me to understand. And that is something that is worth imitating. But now Jesus describes the way. He's going to give an answer. Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. <clears throat> Some take this. Uh, well, let me finish. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the greatest and most unique doctrine of Christianity. The exclusivity of Christ. The only way to heaven, the only way to God, the only way you will have fellowship with God is through Jesus Christ. Not through other sources that bring you through Christ, right? So, uh, you know, Billy Graham and others taught that, um, you know, there's different ways up the same mountain. And a, a, a good, and this is true, I could give you the quotes. I could even send you the interview where he said this. He calls it a wider way, a broader way. Or he, he did, he doesn't anymore, wherever he might be. A, there's a broader way. So that the faithful Muslim, he's, he's, he's on the other side of the mountain, but he's going to get to the top. And so is the Buddhist and the atheist and everybody else who's earnest and the Taoist and the, you know, whatever. They're all, we're all just scaling up different sides of the same mountain. and go. That's not what Jesus says here. Jesus said that apart from him, you will not go to the Father. You will, in other words, you won't go to heaven. You can't go to heaven. This is one of the reasons why the world hates Christianity. Because of this doctrine. Now, note something that in most translations is not picked up here. So, in, in the, in the um, New King James, it reads, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, comma, the truth, and the life. So that truth and life explain, as it were, the way. So you could say something like this. I am truly the way to life. That's no. He's saying three separate things. There's a priority, of course, in the way, because it's the question that Thomas asks. 
But each one of these truths is intended to communicate the way to God. Way, truth, and life. When you see Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, you see the power of his death and resurrection. And that's what he's talking about in his, this context. So three things. He's talking about access, the way to God. He's talking about knowledge of God, truth, and communion with God, the way, the truth, and the life. Stephen Charnock wrote, We lost a paradise by sin and have gained heaven by the cross. And when paradise was closed, access to God, knowledge of God, and communion with God were lost. Those are things that Adam did not have as freely as he once did. And that is really what the entire Bible is trying to get at. Man is not right with God ever since our first father's sin. So what God does is he traces the entire history of his worship, the entire history of, uh, well, the history of the worship of God is recorded in the Old Testament. And if Matthew had never been written, what would the world say? Boy, those Jews failed big time. Because where the Old Testament ends is an abject failure of a people to truly have access, knowledge, and communion with God. In other words, one of the things that we learn from the Old Testament is that the only way to God is with God. Uh, and uh, A.W. Pink, he noted three different ways of understanding this. I don't think he's 100% right, but um, very helpful here. He says, what Jesus has in mind is reconciliation, illumination, and regeneration. Right? So, access to God really has to do with being reconciled to Him. Illumination, of course, is the work of the Spirit by which we understand the truths that are in God's Word, and uh, regeneration has to do with the reception of eternal life. That's what happens in resurrection. When we, oh, excuse me, uh, regeneration. When we are born again, the life of God enters the life of man, and we are united to God, and therefore we share in that life now. Um, I think I've been, I hinted at this a few weeks ago when I talked about the power of Christ in his resurrection and that union that exists. But uh, Paul says it better, better than I do. Um, and he does it in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, he says this. He prays. This is a prayer that I've read tons of times. I've read this passage. So in verse 15, he says, Therefore also... After I heard, uh, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and of your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks. And one of the things he asks for in prayer when he's giving thanks is this. Verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places? 
So that power that God worked in Christ to raise him from the dead is the same. So Jesus is the way to the Father. What do you think Jesus means when he says, I am the door? He is, you, you must come to Christ. He's not saying he's a literal door, right? He has a doorknob in his belly button and you... No, that's not what he's talking about. He is the one who gives access to God. In, in the uh, beginning of the Gospel of John, when he speaks of that vision that Jacob saw, Jacob's ladder, and the angels are ascending and descending on the Son of Man, what's he saying? He's the only way to heaven. Access to heaven is only through Christ himself. And uh, numerous places put it this way. Look at Romans 5, or listen to Romans 5.2. In Romans 5.2, he says this. Paul says this. Through whom Jesus Christ, particularly his death, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What gives us access to that? Christ, his death for us. He opens the door to heaven, he, and it's himself. It's not particularly, because what he says is, this is another one of those I am statements, and depending on how you count them, this is the, might be the last one. There, I believe there's another. But Jesus is saying, I am the way. Uh, I make the way possible, but me, myself. And, th and that's why the exclusivity of Christ is so important. It's knowledge of Him, of His person, of His work. He Himself is the way to heaven. There are other places where, where Paul does this. Ephesians 2.18 and even in Hebrews 14.6. But He is also the truth. So He is the way to the Father, but he is also the truth of the Father. What do I mean by that? That by virtue of his person and work, he confirms all of the promises God has made to his people. God was making promises from the very beginning of the Bible. Making these promises. And when Jesus comes into the world, he is the physical expression of all of those promises. He is the truth of God. Therefore, to know God rightly, one must know Christ. In John 1.18, we, we hear these words, No one has seen the Father at any time, or God at any time. The only begotten Son, He has declared Him. And uh, from that word, we get our word exegesis, but people translate that different ways. He has declared Him. He has explained Him. He has narrated Him. He has communicated Him to us. Jesus is revealing to us who God is. If you want to make a proper study of God, it must include a study of the Gospels, and particularly a study of Christ in those Gospels. In Matthew eleven twenty-five through 27, He says it this way, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son will reveal Him. Christ is the one who reveals God, the Father, to man, rightfully. And then the life of God. So, the way to God, the truth of God, and then the life of God. And the life of God, what I mean by that is eternal life. He communicates eternal life to his people. So he says this in John 6, 
39-40. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Resurrection. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Same thing, essentially what John 3.16 is communicating, is being communicated here. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. That's the life he's talking about. The only way to have fellowship with God is to enter into or participate in eternal life. Eternal life we can have now and eternal life we will enjoy in the future, into eternity. So Jesus here explains what uh, the access, the knowledge, and the communion that can be had if you come to him. So where, where Thomas is making this mistake is like, okay, so we're on the map. How do, how do I turn? Jesus is like, no, you, you, you've misunderstood. I'm talking about me and what I have done in my person and work. That is how you get to where I'm going. And now listen to what he says next. No one can come to the Father. This is, this is not just propositional. Yes, there are truths that have to be believed, but relational. Christ brings men to his Father. It is a knowledge of Christ as, as, as he is uh, declared, as he is presented, as he is revealed in the gospel, is knowledge of him that way, that brings us into the knowledge of God. This is relational. But the third thing is this, is that there is exclusivity and agency. What do I mean by that? Accept. Exclusively Jesus. Nobody else is going to get you to God. You will not be right with God. You will not have peace in this world. And you will not have peace in the life to come if you do not come to God through Christ. And when you speak to unbelievers, it's very evident that that is the case. If you speak to them long enough, you listen to them. What are the things that they talk about? What do they rejoice in? What are they glad for? What makes them happy? What makes them sad? What do they desire? And he is, he is the agent. He is the one except through me. Not through particular truths. Not through practices, not through... No, me, a person, from Christ to the Father. This, of course, teaches us the need for Orthodox Christianity. And by Orthodox, I don't mean the Orthodox Church. I mean biblical. Biblical Christianity, there is a need for understanding what the Bible teaches. The people of God have, uh, should have a great desire for, and they should know that they have a need for Biblical Christianity. And also the need for biblical Christian discipleship. Um, as the Father sent me, so do I send you. The way that Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to his people in this world is by means of other people. It's not really, you know, it's, it's not very complicated uh, to, to believe that and to understand that truth. 
We are the means by which Christ will reveal Himself and therefore bring people to the Father. We have this treasure in pots of clay. That's what we're carrying around. Right? Um, there, there's a reformer whose name is Oikolampadius. That's a great name. It means house lamp. That's what the, that's what the name means. And um, um, I listened to an interview where there's a professor whose name is Vern Poythress. I like Vern Poythress. His wife wrote a PhD dissertation on Oikolampadius. Just his life, and I think she maybe worked on a sermon also that he did. I can't remember, but at least a biography of his life. And she's speaking about her husband, and she says that um, he, Vern Poitras, was their Oikolampadius. He was their house lamp. He was the light of Christ, or is, he's alive, in their home. And that's what we're to be in this world. We're not, we're not to hide the fact that we're Christians and the things that we believe in because other people get offended. Now, we're not trying to be uh, purposefully offensive or disrespectful, but we ought to let our, life, our, our light shine before others because it is by virtue of the light of Christ that men will come to know the Father. Apart from that, they won't. There is no other way for people to know God. And of course... This means that there's a great need for Orthodox Christian missions. And we need to be sending people into other communities that are an hour from here and then into other countries. And we, we need to labor towards that end. And we can't do that, you know, people have this idea that what we'll do as a church is, you know, we'll give $25 to some guy who shows up here once a, once a year and preaches a sermon about some, or whatever. But you don't know that guy. You don't know him. You don't know what kind of crazy nonsense he's teaching people. And it doesn't even hurt you. It's 25 bucks a month. At the end of it, if he goes nuts or does something crazy, you just pull the $25. You're not invested in that man. That's not Christian missions. Christian mission is you, 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 either you raise them up for your church or a group of churches raises up people and you send those people. That's a biblical Christian missions. Or you can give an account and you can say, this man is, he meets the qualifications for an elder. Therefore, we're going to send him. He doesn't come with a letter from a church that's 3,000 miles away and say to you, hey, I'm a missionary to Bangladesh and uh, I want your money so can I come and preach a sermon on Easter? You don't know that man from Adam. He could be the sweetest, nicest man in the world. That is not the way we ought to do Christian missions. Exclusivity and acceptance. But now, <clears throat> we have to remember that we must not search for another way to God. Do not search for another way to God. Christ is the only way to God. But next now, look at verse 7. And these are words of comfort now. The New King James reads this way. It says, If you had known me, which, which almost makes it vague, and I think most translations are that way, if you've got a translation on your lap. If you had known me, but... Um, 25 cent word. This verb is the pluperfect. 
right? A pluperfect means nothing to anybody. But, but, but that communicates something, right? We know what a past tense verb is, right? If I say to you, um, I'm going to the store later on, that's not past tense, is it? No, that's future. And I had to participle, you know, stick a particle, participle in there too to communicate. But I'm going to the store in the future. Or I went to Stewart's. Or whatever, right? Past tense, we know that. And we're able to make adjustments and think about the conversation and understand what's going on. What Jesus communicates here is the idea of a completed action in the past whose results existed in the past with no effect to the future. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't think that they believed, but you, the, a better way to translate it is like this. If you have come to know me, you have come to know the Father. And if you translate it that way, which both the verbs are pluperfect verbs, both verbs are verbs of knowledge, he uses gnosko in one and oida in the other half of the verse. Two different Greek words. Don't concern yourself, right? But, but um, uh, why do I say that? Not for the sake of letting you know that I know Greek, but for the sake of understanding this verse better as a promise. The intention of this verse is not uh, for Jesus to say to his disciples, um, if you had known me, you would have known the Father. He's not saying that. He says, if you have known me, which they did, you have come to know the Father. That is comfort. He's offering Philip, and you, if you think of the, excuse me, Thomas, and if you think of the concept, uh, the context, that's what Philip wants. Philip is asking, how do I go where you're going? Well, Philip, if you know me, you, you know the Father. You have no need to continue to search for ways and routes to where I'm going to go. You, you will be there with me. You will participate in eternal life with me. You know me. So he says to him, if you had known me, or if you have known me, you have known the Father. You have come to know the Father. Uh, JC, I think it was J.C. Ra. He said that Philip is like a man who is searching for his keys while they're in his pocket. <laughs> As, uh, have you ever done that? I've done that before. Looking for my phone, talking to somebody on it. Wait a minute, hold on. I have to find my phone, right? That is what, in essence, that's what Philip is doing, right? Philip is looking for his phone while he's talking to Jesus. Like, wait, hold on, I got to find my phone. Uh, and, and Jesus, and again, he, Jesus offers no rebuke. What does he do? He clarifies. No, um, you don't need a map. Me. I'm the way to the Father. And even better than that, if you have known me, you know the Father, Philip. You don't have to trouble yourself. You, you don't have to be in despair. Th this entire discourse, all the way up to chapter 17, are words of comfort for his disciples. That's what this entire section is. He's just, he, he begins by answering questions. He's answering all of the questions that they have with regards to his departure. And what is he trying to do? He's trying to give them comfort. And that's what we should draw from these passages. No matter what is going on in the world, what is going on in our community, or what is going on personal, personally in our own lives, between our ears and behind our eyeballs, what we're going through, if you know Christ, you know the way to heaven, 
You have knowledge of those things that are essential to get you there. And you have communion with those persons who are there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, there, there's no need for despair, Philip. You know where you're going. And that's the same thing that Christ would say to us today. So in light of these things, brothers and sisters, next week, well, I don't think next week is Easter, so we're going to preach on the resurrection. But the following week, or maybe there's something in Philip's statement which I might preach on the resurrection. Maybe. Um, but we'll see. But in light of these things, let, let, us, let us be comforted in this, that if you, if you sat here today and you paid attention, you know how to get to heaven. And not because it was a fantastic sermon, but because Jesus was so clear. It's just, it's just absolutely clear. He is the only way to heaven. Believe in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Son. Yes, as we consider Him as, as our, our Redeemer, He is the propitiation for our sins, but most importantly in this passage, Lord, He is functioning as our great prophet. And He is revealing to us the deep things of God in such a simple and clear way, Lord, that I pray and ask that You would help us, Lord God, to trust His words and to be built up by them. In His name we pray. Amen. Uh, please stand and sing.